1: Buy
2: low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its $1 billion dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Kathy Fecky. Kathy, how are you?
3: I'm doing great. Excited for this interview.
2: Yeah, same. I uh, I think we have a good one for everyone. We talk a whole lot about the Federal Reserve on this show. And today we have Danielle DiMartino Booth, who actually spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as the advisor to the Fed president, Richard W. Fisher throughout the financial crisis. So we are going to get into, you know, insights from someone who was actually there during the financial crisis and who helped was part of the decision making to introduce quantitative easing into the economy and sort of set off a lot of the cascading events that have landed us in the economic environment we are today.
3: Can't wait. I've personally never spoken to anyone who worked at the Fed. So this will be exciting.
2: That's yeah. We talked to a lot of Fed watchers. We are Fed watchers, but now we actually get to talk to them. So I do want to explain just a couple of terms that Danielle uses a lot throughout this episode that I just want to make sure everyone understands. The first one is quantitative easing. You've probably heard of this, but this is a monetary policy where a central bank purchases securities like bonds or mortgage-backed securities um and it the intention is to introduce liquidity to the market. So basically like Imagine a bank owns a mortgage or a bond. The Federal Reserve just buys it from that bank um, using money they sort of create out of thin air. And so that's why when people say the Fed is quote unquote printing money, they're not actually printing dollar bills. They're just buying these securities and introducing like all of a sudden on the bank that sold the asset. Now there is, you know, whatever, another million or billion dollars in there. The reverse of quantitative easing is called quantitative tightening, which is where the Fed quote unquote shrinks their balance sheet. This is where they sell the securities like mortgage backed securities or bonds and they sell them. And then when they get money from the bank, whoever buys it, they just poof, make that money disappear. Uh, and so there is a way, you know, it is possible that the Fed can you know, reverse some of the money printing um, that has been going on. And Danielle will talk about that a little bit in terms of the M2, which is the monetary supply. It's a measurement for how much money there is circulating in the system. Uh, so I think those are the main two. The other thing I just wanted to mention, she does mention something called the Fed put every once in a while, which is a term that just basically describes this. Attitude on Wall Street or among traders that the Fed is going to save the economy. So that basically traders are willing to take on excessive risk because they think if the stock market falls 10 or 20%, the Fed will jump in and do something. So those are the terms that I think you just need to understand as we go into this interesting episode. And then I do want to say that Danielle, as we get sort of towards the second half of the interview, Provide some, you know, some opinions that are different than I think of the ones that we talk about a lot here. And that's the point. We want to bring on people who have differing opinions from me and Kathy and the rest of the crew. And so we encourage you to listen. And then Kathy and I, at the end of the episode, sort of break down what we think about Danielle's opinions, some of the things we like, some of the things we disagree with. So you definitely want to stick around to the end. With that, we were going to take a quick break and then we'll bring on Danielle DiMartino Booth from QI Research.
4: We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777.
1: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Find out how much at airbnb.com
5: slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company, safe, smart, secure.
2: Danielle D. Martino Booth, welcome to On The Market. Thanks so much for joining us.
6: Well, it's great to be here today.
2: For our audience who is unfamiliar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about your economic background?
6: So I I started my career on Wall Street at a traditional investment bank, uh, DLJ, that's no longer with us. Uh, It was sold out at the peak of the dot-com bubble, so it was kind of an extraordinary time and place to be in New York and witness, you know, IPOs that you would never have sold your grandmother and the implosion of that bubble, uh, subsequent to that, I ended up, uh, I got my second master's in journalism at night, I thought I was going to retire and write a column on the markets for the rest of my life and, and never go back into into the world of, of finance, but just write about it tangentially. And that happened, I ended up at the Dallas Morning News uh, signing a non-compete, leaving the industry, which taught me a lot about private equity, by the way, and, and high yield. It was a unique, uh, bank in that sense. Uh, but Warren Buffett ended up calling off. I went to Omaha, Nebraska, and I got to spend more time with Charlie Munger, who has less of a filter, uh, than, than, than Warren Buffett. And, and then the Federal Reserve came calling. The research that I do today uh, stems from the research that I did for uh, Dallas Federal Reserve President Richard Fisher. I would prepare markets briefings for him before he went off to FOMC meetings in Washington, D.C. And basically what I do now for private clientele are the same types of briefings. We just do them every day and every week. Wow. It's a a very impressive career.
2: I don't think... You know, we talk a lot about the Federal Reserve on the show, but I don't think we've had anyone previously who has experience with the Federal Reserve. Can you just tell us a little bit about, like, what that was like?
6: So I was tweeting out this morning, we were talking about existing home inventories coming in at the lowest levels since the data has been collected in 1999. And, you know, I, I tweeted out this morning. What was fascinating was in 2008, we were having a very heated debate. We were debating what quantitative easing should look like in the event that, oh, I don't know, Lehman Brothers blew up and ignited systemic risk that was global. Uh, and at the time, though, we there was, there was a small contingency that was the anti-Bernanke, anti-Yellen contingency that was saying, if we cross this Rubicon into credit easing, which is specifically a, in violation of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, we could end up impairing mobility and somewhere down the pipeline if we're buying all these mortgage backed securities as part of this big quantitative easing large scale asset purchase program you could impair mobility to the detriment of the long term health of the economy i lost that debate obviously cuz we kept going with qe and and mbs and then in the second iteration of it after the pandemic hit of course the fed ended up buying a third of the mortgage backed securities market and now Everything's come home to roost that we were concerned about. In data back to 1948, we have never seen mobility be this impaired. Nobody wants to get rid of a 2.5% 30-year fixed mortgage. And that is the end result of the Fed buying a third of the market, was they artificially repressed mortgage rates. These are the kinds of experiences that I had at the Federal Reserve, which were just fascinating uh, and we're seeing play out today. When, when Jerome Powell was first on the board, you know he, I was very of the same mind that he was, that it would be very difficult to extricate from blowing up the balance sheet when the time came and that you could cause serious problems and, oh, I don't know, the entire credit market. These things are actually coming to fruition. So it's, it was a fascinating almost decade that I spent uh, at the Fed. It's even more fascinating to watch the debates get settled in the marketplace, which is what's happening now.
3: Fascinating is such a good description. <laughs> I love, I love the title of your book, "Fed Up." I've been a, a critic of the Fed for a long time, but never an insider like you. And it's just so fascinating to to hear what you have to say. What are your thoughts about having this central banking system? I mean, I know this is a big, broad question, but this kind of group of unelected officials having such an influence on our lives.
6: So I am, um, for the record, I am the I am not the creature uh, from Jekyll Island. I, I I think that I think <laughs> I that did read that. that. <laughs> I, I think that that book introduced um, some non truths into uh, kind of the thinking about the Federal Reserve. I was actually just filming on Jekyll Island and, and learned a lot more about what happened uh, at the time, and we forget we forget that that it was as simple as, as J.P. Morgan himself saying, I am fallible, I will die after the panic of 1907. We're no longer an emerging market. We're no longer a developing market. We're a developed country, and it's time for us to have a central bank. That in times of serious financial instability, there is an arbiter that can come in and stabilize the system. And that's exactly what we needed when we woke up and Lehman Brothers blew up and systemic risk had been ignited. And the Fed did have to step in. Don't get me wrong, I wrote a whole book about this. It was a situation they created in conjunction with everybody else who who fed the housing market bubble from the credit rating agencies who looked the other way when subprime wasn't really even any prime. Um, but there were many players who were responsible and the Federal Reserve was certainly complicit but at a time when systemic risk is unleashed uh, worldwide, you have to have adults in the room who can come in and stabilize the financial system in the absence of somebody as strong as J.P. Morgan himself, who corralled a bunch of bankers into his parlor room in 1907 and said, nobody leave until we come up with a solution. You, can, you could do that back then. And, and people always say, but can't we just live without the Federal Reserve? And I'm like, well, we could. But think about what the what the Chinese have done with U.S. intellectual property. Think about that for a minute. And now think about having a completely unguarded financial system that could just be corrupted and invaded by sovereign entities who want to see the United States fall. Think of what they could do to our financial system. Now, we need to rip the Federal Reserve down to its studs. Studs, it needs to be completely re-engineered. It needs to be made independent and apolitical once again, and I would venture to say, I think Jay Powell is a man on a mission to help to help see that vision through.
2: Well, that just that was a great overview. I mean, now I'm yeah. really uh, I'm going to ask you to basically recite your entire book now. But what what do you think the right course is then? So we, we we're in a situation where you said it was necessary in the fallout of of the Great Recession um, to to step in. But we're in a place now where the Federal Reserve has too much power. So where do you think the point they went wrong was?
6: Well, I think the modern day uh, error, if you will, was when Congress created the dual mandate in the late 1970s. So maximizing employment necessarily by economic definition conflicts with minimizing inflation. You simply cannot pursue the same two mandates at once and not kill one or the other. We're watching today as we speak. You know, we have um with, with fresh data out on initial jobless claims, we have 90% of the US population living in a state with rising ranks of continuing unemployment beneficiaries, three months running. So we're watching live recession set in. And yet we've got Jay Powell saying. I understand we're going to have to hurt the labor market, but it's going to be better in the long term if we get inflation back down. So he's telling you we can't do both. We can't do both. When it was too low for too long, it was so that they could bring every last person off the sidelines into the labor market. What did that do? Well, it inflamed inflation when that got going, when the fiscal authorities started throwing money into the hands of taxpayers, directly depositing it, uh, which is why we had inflation like we did. People are always like, why couldn't the Fed ignite inflation alone with quantitative easing? All of those years that Bernanke could not hit a 2% inflation target. If if you gave him a bazooka, he couldn't hit that inflation target. You had the banking system as an intermediary. You can lead a horse to drink. You cannot make that horse drink the water And that's what QE failed to do in terms of trying to bring inflation up to a 2% target. It's that the easing got stuck in the financial system. Inflation was in asset prices, but you bring Uncle Sam in and you bypass the banking system, you give trillions of dollars directly to individuals with the highest propensity to spend. boom, you got inflation overnight. Did the Fed play a part? Yes, they monetized every last penny, But again, the combination of the two is what made the Federal Reserve as powerful as it's been in conjunction with the fiscal authorities. They have to be together in order to create this crazy crazy inflation.
2: Just to to clarify for everyone listening to this, uh, and just to make sure I'm following you, Danielle, the Federal Reserve as of the late 1970s has a dual mandate, which is to maximize employment and to ensure price stability, basically control inflation. What you're saying is that those two things are essentially at odds with each other because to maximize employment, you need a hot economy and inflation is a byproduct of a hot economy. And so it is impossible, at least in our financial system as exists today, for the Fed to do both of its jobs at once. So we're just stuck in this like balancing act where I think a lot of us feel like the Fed just like turns the steering wheel all the way to one side and then it gets too far and then they swing it back in the other direction. And you're saying that's just sort of inherent in their mandate and there, you know, there's not really much other option. Is that, did I get that right?
6: You you got that 100% right. And we, you know, we, we have to think of the era in which the dual mandate was introduced and you know, the Carter administration felt that it could not uh, get employment under control. It was just a runaway train. They felt like they needed extra help uh, in, in in trying to get the unemployment rate down. But having giving the Fed the authority to to take that place was not the right route to take in times of recession. Fiscal authorities do step in, but in a capitalist nation, it is the job of the private sector to maximize employment, and having the Fed step in. To that role has corrupted the institution. But again, this was an act of Congress. And Congress tells the Federal Reserve Board of, in Washington, D.C., whose email addresses end in .gov. It is a full-blown federal government agency where the permanent voters live. It's their job to do as Congress tells them to do.
3: I'm so glad you clarified that because they're you know, again, there has been so many conspiracy theories, all you have to do is type in Federal Reserve on YouTube, and you can go down a deep, dark hole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to hear, again, an insider's viewpoint of how it can be fixed. Is there is there a way to unwind the the doing? I mean, here we are sitting on massive deficits, way overspending, the Fed coming in again to fix it, fix it, fix it. Spending more money, buying more mortgage backed securities, all all the things, all the new tools that haven't, we've never been here before. How do you unwind it and what's next?
6: You unwind it by being Jay Powell and by holding together your committee. We have uh, become accustomed to and too low for too long. It's just, it's it's how we are. You know, the Fed's got your back. Don't fight the Fed. Well, right now, he has managed to create a higher for longer environment that most market participants continue to deny exists. We had a a, a district president come out and say there won't be any rate cuts until 2025. And the market's like, that's impossible. He'll break the market. He'll break the Fed put. Well, if you break the Fed put, people forget in 2018, when Powell first attempted to normalize monetary policy, shrink the balance sheet, At the same time as raising interest rates, he got all the way to two and a half percent on the Fed funds rate and had to do a huge U-turn. Right now, he's got more than two and a half percentage points of easing in the chamber. He's got 300 basis points of easing in the chamber to stop at 2%. You said it's a broken tool. You know what? Let's throw it out of the toolbox. Zero interest rate policy failed. Let's get rid of it. But he's got enough latitude right now to lower rates as much as he did last time and stop at 2%, get rid of zero interest rate policy, ZERP, as we called it. And when he was asked at his most recent press conference, you know, uh, if, if you're pausing, if, if you're not going to raise interest rates, does that mean necessarily that we're going to start to stop quantitative tightening, stop shrinking the Fed's balance sheet? And he was like, nope, didn't mean to imply that. Next question. He moved on very quickly, and he's trying to tell us in his way, QE failed. We don't need to talk about when we might or might not do QE again, because we need to remove it from the toolbox. It's a failed tool. It's a failed experiment. Wow. So if he accomplishes these two things, you start to wake up in the morning, you pull up your Bloomberg headlines and it says right now, uh, you know, buzzards are moving in and buying private companies for thirty nine cents on the dollar. That's what Hire for Longer looks like. It looks like actual price discovery. It
2: sounds like you believe that the Federal Reserve and their committee currently understands their errors and some of the things that they've done wrong. Why don't they just come out and say that? What's with all the like the coded language? Um, <laughs> and why not just explain how you just explained it? What's going on?
6: So let's play Socrates for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Jay Powell could have maintained this tightening stance for as long as he has if he woke up one day and said, let's crash the markets? Mm-hmm. Yeah or have well-behaved financial markets allowed him to continue to slowly boil the frog who doesn't know Mm. he's going to be boiled. You want to kill the frog quickly and the markets are going to throw up and he'll be forced to stop. You'll unleash systemic risk somewhere. Some country will blow up that's large. Some bank will blow up that's large. And all of a sudden you're stuck because financial stability is not something you can mess around with. But for you to trickle it out, one month at a time. This is extraordinary what we're witnessing right now. And people need to have a better appreciation for what's being accomplished because we're watching commercial mortgage-backed security, that market, we're watching securitization shut down. We're slowly seeing the economy flash recessionary signals, but we still have functioning capital markets, highly impaired, But functioning, and as long as we have some semblance of functionality, he can keep going.
3: He can keep going as in tightening?
6: Yes. And every $50 billion that we wake up to on July, whatever it's going to be because of the holiday, and we see that another $50 billion of shrinkage has happened with that balance sheet, that's one more small step towards success. I, I love the way that you're correcting me in my, in my belief
3: system around this because I keep saying that, you know, the only tool that they have is printing more money. What's the truth around that?
6: That's what everybody on my Twitter feed says. They'll just print, print or go, bur burr, burr. And I'm like, Not happening right now.
3: It's not happening right now because, you know, sometimes it looks like they're doing and using another tool so that we don't know that's what they're really doing.
6: (laughs) Like Dave said, like, I wish they could just come out and tell us what they're doing so we don't have to have all these theories. Well, again, um, it's a controlled demolition. Do you have Silver Lake, Silicon Valley, First Republic? Do you just let systemic risk get unleashed in the banking system? set up all the dominoes and let them fall over and have to come in with emergency measures and quit what you're doing? Or do you come in and say, okay, banks, you want some money? Fine. What's Congress grilling Jay Powell about right now? Congress is grilling Jay Powell right now about the quid pro quo. You want cheap money. You want a hundred cents on the dollar? Fine. Congressmen are saying, not so fine. Why are you talking about raising capital requirements? You ogre. You can't do that. The lobbies pay me money. I'm a kept man. I'm a kept woman. You can't talk about raising capital requirements. And Jay Powell says quietly, watch me. People thought that this program that I, that I implemented after was QE. Uh, uh-uh. uh, there's no such thing as QE if there's a price tag involved, if there's recourse. And that's what he's saying right now. You want the cheap money, fine, hold more capital, which is a banker's biggest nightmare.
2: Daniel, you've talked a little bit about uh, quantitative easing and then just briefly about quantitative tightening. Uh, can you just explain to our audience a little bit how that works since you were there and uh, how quantitative tightening can actually reverse some of the you know, quote unquote money printing um, that happened over the last couple of years?
6: So you know, we only have data back to 1930. Uh, But we've never seen since 1937, the movement of money, M2 growth, we've never seen it contracting at this level since the depths of the Great Depression. People do not understand that the stock of money in the system is irrelevant if you're a market player. If you're a market player, you want to know where the next dollar of stimulus is coming from. If it's not, Then you're going in reverse, which is exactly what we're seeing with the drain of liquidity out of the system with M2 as negative as we're we're seeing it year over year. Same with other deposits and liabilities uh, uh, at big U.S. commercial banks. These are negative numbers that we, again, but I just said private companies are trading hands at 39 cents on the dollar. What's that? That's a manifestation of the opposite of liquidity coming into the system. It's liquidity coming out of the system. So that's when all of your crazy speculative leveraged players are like, "Wait a minute, we're not making the rules anymore. We're not breaking the rules anymore. This is anarchy. The, the you know, the inmates have taken over the asylum. There's no leverage to be had. We're not in a zero interest rate world anymore. And now we're getting 39 cents on the dollar for all of the speculative actions that we took that never were going to have consequences because the Fed was always going to ride into the rescue and lower rates back down to the zero bound before any damage was done. 39 cents on the dollar is pretty damn damaging.
2: So it sounds like your belief is that Jay Powell is doing the right thing and sort of trying to reverse some of the mistakes that have happened. Do you think that the soft landing is possible or how do you think this all plays out?
6: (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. No, I did. I not just mention that we've had for three months in a row ninety percent of the U.S. population living in a state with rising, continuing jobless claims. That's that's we're not debating recession. We're debating how hard and deep the recession is going to be. The soft landing thing is BS. It sounds good, and he's hiding behind seriously crappy data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which we know you do not have an entire economist community. As little respect I have for the vast majority of PhDs, you can't get all of them wrong for 14 months in a row. It doesn't work that way. Something's wrong with the data. And yet, as long as something's wrong with the data, J. Powell can reference the data and hide behind it in order to continue one month at a time tightening policy. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's lying to us, but he's doing it on purpose. He's not stupid. He's a lawyer. He's not a PhD in, e- in economics, and he understands exactly why he's hiding behind extremely lagged, corrupted, bad data that will eventually be revised.
3: Well, it's interesting because there are there is a line of thinking that the Fed is really only supporting Wall Street and the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not. Are you agreeing with that? Or
6: again, not? that is um, that is to be determined. If he succeeds in breaking the Fed put, then you'll, there'll actually be a price to pay for taking risk, which we haven't seen since August the 12th, 1987, when Alan Greenspan marched into office and gave birth to the Fed put two months later when he came right into the rescue after the stock market crash of October 1987. So it's been a little while here since the Fed has been trying to make the wealthy wealthier. But this is the first time that somebody who used to work at the Carlisle Group founded the industrials group in a private equity firm, and he's telling his private equity buddies, hold please, or sending him straight to voicemail. We've never seen this for almost 40 years. And yet you're watching public pension funds say, you know what? We don't have to play the private equity game anymore. We can get into private credit. They're the ones buying these companies for pennies on the dollar. We can put 80% of our portfolio into 5% paying cash, put another 20% into companies that are not being levered up, that still get us a great yield. And we can tell all these private equity people who have held our feet to the fire for years with enormously high fees, high leverage, illiquidity, where they can go stick their next fund. That is a manifestation of bringing the inequality divide back down. If you don't let the wealthy make the rules. And that's what Jay Powell is attempting to do.
3: Wow. So, you know, so many investors are listening to the show and probably wondering what in the world they should be doing. I think you just answered part of that. Uh, in in one of my latest keynote speeches, I talked about liquidity being one of the main things we need to focus on because when you don't have money, you can't do the, the leverage deal. And, and you just kind of mentioned that that's liquidity is being pulled back out certainly in commercial banking. So we have we have investors listening to the show who are in commercial real estate in, in residential real estate in business. What should they do?
6: Look, you know, I'm hearing from some veteran, veteran investors who are like, you know what? We're no longer looking for opportunities. We're we're not opportunistic because we don't know what the bottom is going to be. Right now we're actually pulling money away from being opportunistic and paying down debt. Highly unusual circumstances right now that veteran investors see this as being a long protracted chapter as opposed to the Fed's going to ride to the rescue really quickly, which is what this entire generation has been been used to. If you're if he's if j promising to keep rates higher for longer, then you can make money on your cash for longer than you have in your lifetime. So there's no shame in dry powder, especially when trueflation, which I keep on my screen, which traders follow like a hawk because nobody believes the, the BS and the CPI and, and the construct of it, but traders believe in trueflation, which is a billion prices tracked in real time at 2.39%. So they know that they can pay down their debt and make more on their money, twice on their money, what they can get. So they're more than covering inflation. It's 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 really simple math right now, and you know the fact that we have all these Airbnb jocks who are being you know forced to begin liquidating their portfolios of of, of condos that they thought they were going to rent out forever at COVID high prices per week, and that ain't happening. So we know that residential is going to hit an air pocket and it's going to be really ugly. We're just not there yet. We know that commercial real estate distressed inventory is biblical and it's not just contained as downtown San Francisco. It's a bigger story than that. There was fresh data out today that said that distressed commercial real estate um, inventory just hit a record high dollar level. TREP told us that office delinquency skipped north of 5%, moved 100 basis points in a month. And then they identified a whole bunch of really bad distressed properties that they see making that rate go higher than anything we're used to. There's no shame right now in having dry powder because it pays and it pays you twice what inflation is.
3: So you wouldn't be aggressively looking for commercial real estate right now?
6: God, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm just making that clear because I still see people doing it. No. Over the weekend, Amazon announced that it was firing 9,000 more people. Walmart continues to close distribution centers. So the, the industrial footprint, which was, that was the safe place to be. But first it was multifamily. That was, our, that was our big short in 2022 for our clients. This year for our clients, the big short's industrial. And again, you have to find the darling asset classes that are bulletproof. Once somebody says these prices cannot come down, then you know, you know where the next target is.
3: Ooh, that's what we've been saying. Residential can't come down. It's, people are locked into these 3% rates. They'll never let go of those properties.
6: Oh, they, And that's true as long as there's no death, divorce, tax, or job loss. Otherwise, it's all good. But again, nobody's talking about the inventory sitting in the hands of these Airbnb jocks or the fact that Starwood put 2,000 homes out of the 3,200 homes it had in its portfolio for sale a few days ago. It's always the smart money that gets out first. These Airbnb jocks, VRBO jocks, I've got 100 properties. I mean, there was some crazy YouTube meme going around 18 months ago. These guys have 0% mortgages, 0% mortgages. They don't have equity in these homes. They have buckus.
2: We probably know some of these people.
6: (laughs) They're going to hate this show. Yeah, they're not going to like this. (laughs) You know, Watching these guys burn is not going to make me unhappy at all because assuming that, well, you know what assuming does, right? spell no. the word out. <laughs> uh, but assuming that you're going to get these massive cash flows at infinita, as the biggest players start to liquidate their portfolios, and they're like, we'll let those guys go down last. Th- they can get the pennies on the dollar. They can get the lowest prices. A- and you're seeing th- my hometown of Dallas. I'm in Indiana right now, but my hometown of Dallas, they just said no more short-term rentals.
2: Yeah, they just banned
6: it. There are other major cities worldwide and uh, here, Little Rock, uh, Atlanta's imposing restrictions. They've done studies, crimes higher, period end. Philadelphia just had three people shot um, one night last weekend at these short-term one-night rentals. So cities are ganging up against these entities and they're like, well, we'll just convert to long-term rentals. And I'm like, that'll work out well because you you don't have any properties that are for rent sitting vacant in the city of Austin, except... (laughs) thousands and thousands and thousands of properties. And that's what we're starting to see. We're starting to see that the inventory story itself is something of a a red herring because so many properties that have been purchased are sitting vacant. Yes, they're for rent, but they're vacant. Interesting. And or you're not able to get the same lease because renters right now are growing very savvy to the fact that they can up and move and get a lower lease and they will, and they are. And you've also got... Yeah, a hundred percent increase in the number of homes that were built to rent new properties. I just wrote about this this week. Uh, So you have massive subdivisions that have been built to rent. So this, this fanciful notion, yeah, it's correct. A baby boomer who's liquid and flush with a two and a half percent mortgage, they ain't going anywhere, but their kids are moving in with them. I can guarantee you that.
3: Where are you getting this data? Because we represent over 70,000 investors at Real Wealth, and I know Bigger Pockets has over two million.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm not personally seeing this. These the properties are are renting immediately. Maybe it's the markets that we're in, um, so we're not seeing it. But
6: we, um, I've got a few colleagues who are literally driving through neighborhoods. Um, one one of my friends made a four minute video uh, specifically in Austin. My son lives there. I used to live there, so it's it's it's, it's imploding. Austin's the weakest market in the country right now. So it's imploding mm-hmm. at the most violent pace. That didn't exist in the prior housing bubble because the state of Texas had outlawed home equity lines of credit uh, after the SNL crisis. So that was why Texas was, uh, was shielded. Texas is going to be ground zero uh, right now because Dallas, Houston, Austin, these, these areas are imploding under the weight of the shadow inventory and the vacant inventory. But, and, and then you have to look at other Sources to see the, the subdivisions that have been built. Uh, you know, Phoenix and Dallas are where you've got the most homes that have been built to rent. But the I, I've done two deep dives, the last of which was published yesterday on the shadow inventory that's lurking out there. And you have to get down in the dirt and go one metro at a time, and then you and then they're just there. They're just sitting there staring at you. Again, it might be a Blackstone. It might be an invitation home. It might be a Starwood property that they're liquidating. They they are owned. They're just not rented.
3: Yeah, that's mm. so interesting. We have a single family rental fund in North Dallas, and we have wait lists for the property. So perhaps, again, it's the areas that we're in, or maybe we're just not feeling it. But Or they're the right price. They're affordable.
6: Or they're the right price. And mm-hmm. you know, Dallas is one of the few places where, you know, that two-hour commute still exists. Mm-hmm. And people are living in Prosper and God knows where else. I mean, they, they, I mean, Oklahoma, practically, on the border, on the Red River. We've got great views of the river. Um, but they're living so much further and further north to get that affordability. Yes. And, and yet Dallas has the highest office vacancy rate in the country. So it's going to be highly problematic, that market. And I, Dallas, I know, like the back of my hand. And, and we are hearing from people in Dallas that the price points are simply not working anymore.
2: Danielle, I'm curious what you think, like, there if there's all this shadow inventory and we're sort of the, the worst is yet to come, as you've said, like, what is the catalyst you think that will sort of like start making this more into the public view?
6: Well, so, you know, Dallas to 30A is a no brainer. I've raised four kids there. They're now up here at a military academy. But you know that that ten to twelve hours drive to to the Gulf Coast in Florida. That's kind of what people from Dallas do. It's, it's also what people from Atlanta do. But to get these advertisements with greater frequency, no longer seven night minimum. You can have it for three. That started in April, and it's just it's become more and more and more aggressive. And it's it's a simple matter of there is so much supply that's owned by these short term rental companies. And a lot of companies, a lot of families, excuse me, have done the math. They're staying in a hotel or there's been a job loss. Where job loss has been the the worst white collar. The wealthiest individuals on the income ladder have been the first to lose their jobs. They're the the people who can afford to spend $10,000 a week for a one-week rental who've just canceled the summer vacation for the family. And that's why I'm my emails bombarded with 30 a emails saying, I mean, two years ago in COVID, if I would have said, can I do five nights instead? It would have been like, go pound sand. We've got somebody right behind you, sister. Not the case.
3: So yeah, coming back to jobs when we've got over 10 million job openings and you said, you know, you don't trust that data. What is it about that data you don't trust?
6: So uh, it's it's interesting that you asked that. Speaking of Dallas, the Dallas Fed and the St. Louis Fed did a joint paper uh, about 18 months ago and- if a job opening is written specifically for the purpose of hiring your competitor's best employee, who then you don't you have to pay them a little bit more, but you don't have to spend the money to train them, ninety percent of job openings they found 18 months ago were for the specific purchase of poaching, poaching your competitor's best employee. So and this, was, this, this paper was so revolutionary, it would have been presented at a federal open market committee meeting directly to Powell. And Powell's like, got it. It's garbage data. I'm still going to hide behind it because I want to tighten policy. Look at Indeed.com. December 2021, we had job postings peak. We're down 23% from that level and it's falling fast. What did Indeed tell us two weeks ago? They said that by the time we get to the end of 2024, based on the current rate at which wages are falling we'll be at 3.1% year over year for wage growth. When we were talking about triple those levels at the peak and in, indeed said it's no longer white collar, we're seeing job drop, job openings fall the fastest for the lowest paying positions that enjoyed the most in the way of, of, of wage inflation in recent years. So there is a small cohort of the economy, innovation Taxes.com. GetYourRefund.com. The Employee Retention Credit, which is the thing. It's the buzz. Uh, It's still going on. And the IRS right now is investigating the simple level of fraud, but it is pumping $20 billion of excess stimulus into the U.S. economy, has been every month. And it is supporting the people who are now basically fraudulently applying for this ERC credit because they're being solicited. And The companies are being paid a 30 percent contingency fee, which is a no, no. These are your tax dollars. Not it's this is not a lawyer chasing an ambulance. But yet now the IRS is being bombarded because of all the fraud. So that's something that Joe Biden extended that was born in the CARES Act. And so you are seeing, you know, toddlers in first class. Mom and dad are actually buying (sighs) those first class seats because Uncle Sam has given them a, a tax refund that they didn't deserve.
3: I, I've always wondered if those people are are just the kids of the pilot, or if they're actually paying for those seats.
6: <laughs> they're paying for the seats with your taxpayer dollars because this slush fund has been going on for so long. And now it's it when it hit the front page of the of the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, I I said, okay, fine. Somebody's finally cluing in right now to to what this means.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. This has been an absolutely eye opening episode. I really appreciate your perspective on this. I've I've learned a lot here. Uh, do you think there's anything else that our audience should know uh, just about your your read of the economy and understanding of the Fed?
6: I think that's something we have to bear in mind right now. Are two things. And the first is re- from a starting point in the current cycle, from a starting point, recoveries on leveraged loans, which was that was the, the darling asset class. They're starting out at thirty. 3 cents on the dollar. That is lower than the depths of the great financial crisis. So people need to understand that as these as credit continues to be disrupted, the recoveries that they're going to have are going to be really low. So if if you think that that you want to hold out, hold out. If you want to get liquid, do it yesterday. Don't wait to be the dumb money and be the last out of these markets. Liquidate and get the hell out because recoveries st- from a starting point at the depths of the great recession. That's telling you something. S&P Global came out a few days ago, along with TransUnion. Household delinquency rates at the beginning of recession are at the highest levels on record. Again, these are highly unusual circumstances. Lending standards collapsed during the pandemic. And now we're starting to pay the price. Everybody's like, I can buy a car now. And I'm like, no kidding. Um, But that's because the household debt cycle is kicking in. Starting from prior record levels, we will rewrite the rules when it comes to pennies on the dollar recovered in commercial real estate, in corporate debt, and in household debt.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for your your input and advice here, Danielle. We really appreciate it. If people want to follow your work and research, where should they do that?
6: So for sure, follow me on Twitter if you don't already, at Demartino Booth, never boring. Um, and I'd love to have you come on as a client, uh, Substack. Uh, I'm easy to find.
2: All right, great. Thank you so much to Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the CEO and Chief Strategist for QI Research. (music) Kathy, what did you think of our conversation with Danielle?
3: Oh, you know, sobering in a lot of ways. I... I I have been hoping for a soft landing and you know, you're starting to see more and more headlines stating that. And that's probably because everybody's been waiting for the economy to fall off a cliff all year and it just hasn't. So I think people are thinking maybe it just won't, but, uh, it doesn't mean it's over. I think that's, that's her point is like, it's not over yet, guys. And, and be cautious still. I love the part about paying off your debt, doing all the right things. Mm-hmm. Should a recession come, or should there be another boom? You, if you are, if your finances are tight and you, you've got plenty of cash flow to cover your assets, so that if if there are vacancies, if, if rents do decline a little bit, uh, you're going to be fine. So just making sure you're all buttoned up and and uh, able to handle a downturn. I can tell you, I went through 2008. And there were certain properties that were totally unaffected and others that were just lambasted. Right. Uh, so I, from personal experience, I can say you got to be prepared for what could come, but not freak out.
2: Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think uh, I, I really enjoyed her discussion of like the bind the Fed is in, because I think every most people who understand what they're doing recognize that they're in a pretty tight spot. There's not a, a lot of good... Options for them. And I think the debate over, like, is the market going to crash? It sounds like, you know, Danielle clearly thinks that that's going to happen. You know, if you listen to this show, I think most of the people on this show have thought a more moderate correction is probably the more likely outcome. And it seems like the crux is like, will the Fed keep interest rates high for as long? as Danielle thinks they were, which could be years for now, and to correct some of their errors and basically say like they're okay with a big crash. Or I guess the other side is like most people think the Fed wants to get inflation down. They want to correct what's gone on with quantitative easing, but they're not willing to tank the economy. And so they will probably take a more measured approach. Clearly, Danielle thinks they're going to go for it. um, But I personally wonder if that's what's going to happen. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure for the Fed to take their foot off the gas a little bit in the next year. And I guess we'll just have to see whether they acquiesce.
3: Yeah. So it is really so hard to predict. I highly doubt that you know, we would see them go above what they said they're going to do. They said they're going to, the Fed said that they're going to do two more quarter point rate hikes this year. And I believe them. I think that will happen. Uh, will anything happen after that? I, I, I kind of think they're either just going to hold it or maybe, yeah, I really think that they're just going to hold rates where they are through 2024. And that doesn't scare me too much, but I also don't know how bad things are. Um, things I don't know about that are happening behind the scenes. Like, how are they saving these banks? (laughs) I I don't know, but I imagine there's more. But how are they saving them?
2: I don't know. Do you know? Uh, No, I do (laughs) not know how they are saving these banks. But one question I had, uh, you know, I should have asked this, but I sort of thought of it after after she left was, you know, she's saying rates are going to stay higher for longer. But at the same time, she's also saying that unemployment is going up and we are entering a recession. And to me, like those two things are at odds, because if we go into a recession, the Fed will probably cut rates because they've done what they need to do. So I think this idea that both of those things could happen at the same time where we have this higher for longer environment, we're also in a deep recessionary environment, that to me doesn't gel. I don't know how you think about that.
3: A hundred percent. I kind of see it like where we are right now is like driving a stick shift car where you could really screw it up, right? <laughs> when you're learning it. <laughs> oh, I have. Um, <laughs> I definitely have. But if you just so ever so gently move both levers gently, you can you can have a smooth ride. So that's where I feel like they are. And I could be so wrong and it could just be my hope but that maybe, maybe they're learning. And we do seem to have a lot of open positions, a lot of jobs. We have mm-hmm. a lot of robots coming online. We have a lot of AI <laughs> that will cut out certain jobs. Yeah. Um, so I just, I'm going to remain confident. I know one thing for sure is that people do prefer to live indoors. So at least in my industry, I don't think that. You know, all the kids are going to move back in with mom and dad or grandpa. I just don't see that happening. I feel really comfortable in my strategy, which is affordable housing and strong growth markets. So I'm not personally worried about what she's worried about. But yes, was there, are there groups? Are there firms? Are, are there people who went a little nuts? I, I think for institutional investors where they were probably on adjustable rate loans, they they might be feeling it right now. Mm-hmm. But most individual investors aren't. They're on 30 year fixed.
2: Yeah. I think that's a big difference in looking at Starwood and trying to compare some of those people. Listen, I mean, she could be right. I, I personally have said I think prices will come down a little bit. But I just think that the like disaster scenario, while possible, is not the most likely scenario. I, I think a, a modest correction. We'll probably see inventory come up, like she said. But um, I've never really bought into the shadow inventory narrative. I don't really understand the idea that there's like all this vacant stuff sitting on the market that's all of a sudden all going to get put on the market at the same time. It just doesn't make sense logically. Like, why would institutional investors buy properties and not put them on the market during the last several years when we're at historically low vacancy rates. Like that does <laughs> so and historically you. high rents. It doesn't make any sense.
3: When you've got uh f- investors all over the place looking for those deals desperately <laughs> and right, making offers right. all the time. No, I, I'm not
2: buying yeah, it. Yeah, it doesn't check out. And then I've also talked to a lot of people about this who are like, Yeah, you know, there's 15 million vacant properties. There are, but there's always been a lot of vacant properties, you know, like yeah. that 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 has always been true. And like to this idea that like all of a sudden People who have neglected vacant properties are all going to sell them at once. Just also doesn't make logical sense to me. Um, so I, I think it was a great conversation. Listen, like that, this show, we do this on purpose. We bring on people with different perspectives um, to help everyone here understand different views of the economy and the housing market. So you can help make decisions for yourself, what you believe to be true. So hopefully uh, everyone learned a lot um, and got a new A new set of information to think about.
3: Yeah, for sure. And you know what? In five years, we'll know. This will be a legacy
2: piece. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. We'll revisit this. All right. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun and Everyone, we appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to write us a review either on Spotify or Apple. It means a lot to us. I know it might not seem like a big deal, but we love reviews and we would appreciate if you wrote one for us. So thank you if you do that. We will see you all for the next episode of On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. Produced by Kalen Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire BiggerPockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire bigger pockets community. And there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here is just one transaction. But of course the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close, how do you manage it? optimize it, keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leika DeBatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com four today and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. I'll see you there.